Hey everyone, and welcome back to the First Act Podcast. I'm your host, Harry G, and today we've got a super special episode just for you. This is part one of Writing and Producing with Bob Cashel, television writer of The Simpsons, Third Rock from the Sun, The Muppets, and so much more. Listen in as we break down Bob's path of landing an agent at only 19 years old to navigating new grounds in television and entertainment. This is an episode you won't want to miss. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, because we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Bob, thank you so much for being on the First Act Podcast. Oh, it is my pleasure. So we're going to be doing something a little bit different today. For those of you out there who don't know Bob Cashel, Bob is a seasoned vet in the TV and kind of a little bit in the film industry. Honestly, it's a real pleasure to have Bob on the show. So Bob is a writer. He's going to be one of probably one of the funniest guests that we've had on the show. I would not prep anybody by saying that. I would not be doing that. I find Bob to be a delight every time I chat with him. I'm very fortunate to be calling him a friend of mine. Um, I call him TV Bobby because we play poker together online. And so Bob is going to be walking us through piece, bits and pieces, you know, the good, the bad, and maybe a little bit of the ugly of, of what Hollywood is all about, working behind the scenes. So now, Bob... You can fill in some of the blanks here, but I know that you've been a producer and a writer, and here I'm just kind of reading off your IMDb page. But So from Third Rock from the Sun, Samantha Who, The Muppets, uh, a personal favorite of mine, Suburgatory, um, what else, from The Simpsons, and so much more. So without further ado, Bob, it's great to have you on. So Bob, you know, why don't you tell everybody uh, where are you originally from? Uh, Los Angeles, Woodland Hills, California, San Fernando Valley. I grew up there, went to El Camino Real High School in Woodland Hills, and then I went to uh, UC Irvine, where I, which is, uh, which I like to call the Harvard of Irvine. And it is, uh, it was a great program there. I was a theater major and, and a playwright and really, uh, you know, was kind of there just constantly writing television spec scripts in college to get out of college. And ultimately, actually I did, I, I did get out of college. I, I got an agent when I was, I was 19 years old when I got my first literary agent, which seems crazy, but it, it, it was, you know, I just, at that time I was like, oh yeah, I'll just do this, I'll do this, I'll get an agent, I'll do this. And it all just kind of came, to fruition, I don't know, I don't think it is that way anymore, that possible anymore. Well, maybe it wasn't even that way or that easy back then. You might have just been lucky or at the same time, you know, you might have had a lot to offer. And I think you are just a pretty humble guy. So what I'm my, my job here is to dissect and dig a little bit deeper and see maybe there are similarities or there are things that people can mimic by reading between the lines of some of your stories so that they can emulate it into today's entertainment business. Sure. So did you always want to work in the entertainment space? Like what stood out to you about entertainment as a kid? Well, there, it's so funny because I have this very vivid memory of when my whole life clicked into this idea that I wanted 
happened to be in the entertainment industry. And it was literally when I was in second grade, there was this movie called Bugsy Malone. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or seen it. Never. It's a, it's a movie about a bunch of gangs. It's a gangster movie. It's, 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 um, it's directed by Alan Parker, just a great freaking director, directed Birdie. And it's just, he's just an excellent director. And this was his first movie and it was a musical about gangsters. And it was all the gangsters were played by children. Um, and they were riding around in like old timey cars, but they were all pedal cars and they blew each other up with with guns, but the guns had whipped cream in them. And I know it sounds crazy, but it was magical. It was like, oh, my God, this is my world. This is a world of kids and entertainment. I, mean, it was like, I didn't know what I was seeing, but I knew that. I drove on my way home. I was in the backseat. I'll never forget. I know exactly where I was in the hills where this happened. I was, I was crying my eyes out. And my mother turns around. She's like, what's the matter? What's going on? I thought you loved the movie. I was like, I loved it so much. I don't understand why they didn't ask me to be a part of it. I couldn't (laughs) figure it out. I couldn't understand how I was not a part of that movie. And so the next morning, literally, this is second grade, the next morning, I went to school and I started talking to my friend about it. I'm like, I, I, I want to write the sequel. I want to write like, there, I didn't even know what writing was. I didn't even know what sequels exist. I just like, I knew I wanted to write something or do something that emulated the movie I just saw, like the second chapter. So I started writing literally the next day. I started writing in my notebook freehand and my, with, with a pencil. The, the, the script for whatever the sequel to Bugsy Malone was going to be. And got bored with that after a month or two, started writing something else, got bored with that. But it was constantly writing. And I remember getting kids who weren't actors at all. I mean, they were just kids. They were fourth graders or right. second graders or third graders, whatever age that was, and get them behind the, the library and give them scripts. And we would all read scripts and they would act it out and stuff like that. And that is really how I started. And I, I just kept writing and writing and writing and writing all the time, I, mixed with making posters for the movies that I was writing. That, that was kind of a, a combination, making posters and writing movies. And uh, I wrote my first full-length 120-page screenplay when I was 12. Wow. So that was, it was crazy. It was crazy. I was like obsessed. Okay, I have a bunch of questions. The first question that I want to ask, I want to come back to that hundred and you said hundred and twenty or hundred and fifty page. It was like a hundred and twenty page screw. It was a full length screenplay. Wow. I want to come right back to that. So obviously you were very creative and you were, you know, probably a bit of the terror of the class, I can only imagine. I was a class clown, definitely. <laughs> For sure. I really was. Without a doubt. You still are. I still go to second grade classes and I sit in the back and I just make jokes and make the teacher feel like shit. That's what I do. <laughs> So you were obviously very passionate about this. And what about like mom, dad, did they, did they see that you were having, like that you were passionate about this and did they find ways to, you know, feed this passion? Yeah. I mean, look, they did everything that my parents did everything they could to support me at any time. Like, I mean, I didn't know how to type when I was first, you know, writing, I didn't know how to type. And then my father had this big, like IBM selectric typewriter with the ball that flew back and forth. It was so fantastic. And, uh, but he would type for me. I like, I would write and then I would give him the pages and he would type a, a, a script for me when I was a kid. But then, um, 
Yeah, but then I learned how to type very early in my life, self-taught, just real, like when I was 12. When I wrote that screenplay, I learned how to type. It was, you know, that that really just, it's all you have to do to learn how to type, at least at that age. Now everybody knows how to type before they come out of the womb. It's funny that you say that because I remember when I was 11 years old, you know, I was not nearly as creative as you in this regard. I wasn't like a big writer. I always enjoyed writing, but I wasn't like a... A particularly big writer. Um, I was tasked in sixth grade with writing some like a, like an autobiography almost of like my own life, right? I yeah. called it Harrison's Life Uncovered. My mom is very creative. So we made this little, um, you know, like those like those binder, those like bind, those like kind of like they're bindings. Um, they're very thin and with the clip with the clear front. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so we took two of those on either side, and we just kind of like made this picture of me in a pot, and it, I, I was holding like the, the the lid over my head, and it's like Harrison's life uncovered. And we we put the the little bindings on either side, so it would slide up and down, and we put like a little collage of the photos. And the reason I'm saying this is because I had to type out every single page that we put into the scrapbook. Yeah. And I did not know how to type. I didn't know how to use a keyboard because to me, the alphabet went from A to Z. And now you have Q, W, E, R, T, Y, blah, 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 right? So it was super weird. But my mom, who took typing classes as a kid, was teaching me how to type. So she would yeah. be like, okay, I'm going to type this sentence. Now you take over and you're going to type this. Or, or she would read something to me and I would have to type it. And I found it so frustrating. It's interesting because you're right. Nowadays, all kids kind of just, we all just know how to type, whether it's texting on our phones or... Absolutely. Kids know keyboards before they ever see a keyboard. They, I mean, because they've seen it on their phone. They've seen this, this little thing on a phone. And so they just know. And I just think it just becomes second nature to kids. They don't, I don't think they have typing classes in school anymore. I'm sure they don't. But now, uh, so it's so different now, you know, I used to have a freaking typewriter where every time I made a career, Direction, I had to press this thing, pull out a cartridge, put in another cartridge, go backwards, you know, the, type the word I typed to overtype that with like a whiteout thing, take the cartridge out and do it and put it the other one in. But I became lightning, lightning fast with that. So it was just like, I'd be typing, 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 typing. It was just so, it was like second nature to me. So uh, yeah, it was it was really cool to to come up during a time that was a lot more you know rudimentary, I guess. But there was something magical about that time. You know, there was something magical about pulling a piece of paper out of the typewriter after you're finished with it, and sticking it on a stack, and putting a new one in. There was a whole there was a whole like ritual that that isn't that you know isn't quite there anymore. Um, no, no, but it, you know, it, there's, there's fewer barriers now for, to, to write your own script. And so I want to talk a little bit about your script that you wrote when you were 12 years old. What was it called? What was it about? It was called Murder is Child's Play. And it was about, about because I, by the way, I always intended to make this movie. This movie was intended to star me and my friends. Um, and we were going to make this movie and, and, uh, so it, it was about five kids who had a detective agency who posed as, I think it was the family of a very wealthy man who had been murdered. And they all come to the house after he had been murdered and solved the crime of his, you know, solved the crime. Great. It's going to be a Marvel movie next, next year. We're very excited. <laughs> I mean, it is not good. It is a very poor movie. But you still have it. I have it somewhere. It's in a box in the attic somewhere. Yeah. 
That's cool. You know, you should you should you should try to get someone to make an adaptation of it, or even just make it. Oh no, oh no. There's nothing good in it. There's nothing. The only thing good in it is the idea that a twelve year old kid wrote it. You know, that's what's good. Okay. Uh, but there's no. It's 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 completely terrible. So how long did it take you to, to from start to finish to to write something like this? I think that took a few months. I think it, it, yeah, I think it took a bunch of months. Um, but it was, you know, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know what there was a form or, or not a form, but there was that the, the, there were acts, you know, or grow, you know, I, it was all just instinctive, you know, it was right. all instinctive and you learn things from doing whether or not you've read how or not. You, the, obviously, the more you do anything, the better and better you get at it. Um, and probably for a 12 year old, it was, it was cute. Uh, but you and know, it, was I, good. But, it was probably good for a 12 year old. I don't know, but here's the thing you were asking me about my parents and how, how much they supported me. I know, I remember that my mother was working with somebody who knew somebody who was a producer and they got the script to this person. And that person wrote me back and said, you know, great job, kid, keep it up. And it was like, it just, filled me, filled me with excitement. But then at the same time, it just destroyed me because I was like, how, how is he not buying this? How is this not being, I couldn't understand it. How is this movie not being made, you know? But I think that's, 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 it's youthful exuberance, but that really is really exciting. That kind of feeling of everything you write is so great that everything should be made. You know what I mean? But I think that that's, that's a great thing because if you have that excitement and that confidence at a young age and you're getting some support, you know, from your parents or even, or even from people, even better from people that are not your parents. And they're saying, wow, this is actually good. Keep it up, kid. You yeah. know, we're not going to yeah. make it into a movie, but keep it up. It's a good thing. Then that, that keeps you going as a kid because Absolutely. it's very easy to quit as a kid. Absolutely. Even easier as an adult. <laughs> much easier as an adult. Um, so it was, it was really, you know, it became intoxicating to me, you know, writing and, you know, I, my best friend at the time we had this, he wanted to be in showbiz and we, we, we took an empty room in this house and we built this big office with movie posters and movie standees. And, you know, my, when I was, when I had a, when I was bar mitzvahed, um, my mother's partner got me, my mother's business partner got me a, uh, a subscription to Variety. So I was a 13-year-old kid getting a daily prescription and subscription to Variety, you know, and I would run to the mailbox every day and I'd read about the business and I'd read about the people and I, I became very knowledgeable very early on about, about the business, you know? And that was how you learned then, right? Because that was probably what, 80s? That was the 80s, sure, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was the mid-80s. Yeah. So that was that was how you learned. And then I would go to bookstores and, and you know, still, but I mean, back then, constantly go to bookstores and reading and, and just sitting on the floor of Crown Books. Back then, there was a place called Crown Books or Barnes & Noble, whatever it was. And I'd just sit there and I would just soak up as much information as I could and scripts. I would read as many scripts as I could. And it was, um, it just gave me a really good education, you know? How did you get your hands on scripts as a 15 year old? Because they would publish scripts sometimes. They, they, scripts would, and they still are, yeah. They would still be published. 
And then uh, there would, you know, the, the top strips. There'd be, mm. there'd, there'd be like uh, an anthology of like, of, of the best films of, you know, 1994 or whatever, or 1983, right. whatever it was. And they would have all the scripts, you know, five or six scripts, you know, but where you could really find scripts back then particularly was at Samuel French Bookstore and there were all of the plays. So all the plays ever written <laughs> were at Samuel French Bookstore. And theater was far more accessible to me because I could do theater at school and then I could, you know, in junior high, and then I could do it at high school. And then eventually I went to college for, for theater. So were you one of those kids where you're like a theater geek in, in, in school, like you would act in the in the plays? I would absolutely act, direct, write. Yes, I was just like, I was king of the drama department. That's, you know, that's, that's that, that because I, it's like, at least then I felt like I was a part of something that was like the industry you know that was the industry and you were comfortable just going you were comfortable going on stage and like loved it loved it loved going on stage loved acting and and were you one of those kids who would be like oh you know you should say that line in a different way or would you try and rewrite the script i wouldn't try to rewrite other people's scripts but i was definitely a control freak and i was definitely <laughs> you know i it's funny because when i was writing back then and acting back then what i thought i wanted to be was a director because I thought that that person, you know, wrote and I, I don't know, and acted and direct and was controlling everything, you know, right. it was something I don't know. I didn't know what anything really was, but um, but I call I where I thought I wanted to be a director. The truth is, I really wanted to be a writer. Right. You know, I had this conversation earlier today with somebody else completely unrelated to entertainment industry. We were talking about the creator industry and he was asking about my background. And I said that, you know, even though I studied uh, accounting in college, I was like, I want to work in the music business. And to me, not knowing anything about the music business, I was like, well, I want to be an agent. Because you think that it's, it's kind of like that, you know, at the time, I thought there were like four jobs in the music business. I thought you could be an artist or you can be a manager or an agent or a label. <laughs> and I, you know, and, and you don't realize that there's so many other options out there and there's so many roles within each of those. So I, I, I totally get what you're saying here that you're saying like, oh yeah, I want to be a director, but what you really wanted to be was a writer. The writer, and I think that also the most prominent people were the directors, right? So the movie business, television, remember there back then there was only three networks or three and a half, four networks, some, you know, eventually. And movies was where you saw everything. You took one or two movies a week, you know? And the people who directed those movies, the Spielberg, I mean, Spielberg, I was obsessed with, and Coppola and Scorsese, you know, I guess less so because I didn't go see their movies, but definitely Spielberg and Chris Columbus and, and John Hughes, they were directors, you know? Right. But so I just assumed, oh, I'll just be a director. But like you said, what I, the, the irony is what I really wanted to do was write. You know, that's the opposite of what people normally say. But what I really wanted to do was write. Yeah, and, and that's what you were doing. Without even realizing it, you probably thought the directors are the same as the writers. They're, they're, they're the one who does everything. It's one person who does everything. They put it all together, and then and now we got a movie. Exactly. So let's fast forward for a moment. You know, you're, you're, you did high school plays. You're a bit of a control freak. You love to do it. So at 19... Tell me, how the hell did you get an agent? Well, it goes back to, can I, can I go back a couple, a couple of years when I graduated high school? Of course. That's really where the story starts. Okay. I, um, 
I graduated high school and started a comedy group in Los Angeles of other like-minded, actually they were all my best friends and they were all actors and musicians and, and writers and, and comedy people. And there's uh, the Groundlings. Have you, have you ever heard of the Groundlings? A lot of the Saturday Night Live people come from the Groundlings. Yeah. It's like Second City and the Groundlings. And um, So is that what you're saying? You started the Groundlings? No, I didn't start the Groundlings. <laughs> or I, and I didn't start at the Groundlings. But when I went to the Groundlings as a kid, I went, I think I was, I was 14 uh, when I first went there. I saw Pee Wee Herman and Phil Hartman and John Lovitz and like all these great people who eventually went on to, to you know, Saturday Night Live. Right. Which is, a, you know, Groundlings is a feeder, major feeder for Saturday Night Live. Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig, and now Mikey Day, all these people. Anyway, so... I went there with these these guys that I that were my friends for a birthday party mm-hmm. and saw this and said, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have my own comedy group. And we came up with this idea for upstage comedy. It was going to be a young comedy group, whatever. We were 14 or 15 years old. Nothing was going to happen. But the day I graduated high school, I called my buddy and I said, what about upstage? We got a summer available. We're not doing anything let's start upstage before we go back to college. Mm-hmm. And so there was eight of us or nine of us that started this comedy group. And I was like, I was in charge of it with my buddy, Steve Epstein. And um, I wrote most of the sketches and acted in it. And it was like a hit. It was like a little minor hit in Los Angeles. And we got reviewed and then we did it the next summer and got better reviews. And then we did it the third summer. How did you guys get all these reviews? Like if if this was something that you guys were just starting or was Upstage something that was already organized? No, it wasn't, it was brand new. And um, we rented a theater with money from one of our friend's parents. Right. And we sold tickets and got that money back eventually. Um, But I guess the guy who who ran that theater had connections to these various magazines and stuff like that. And I guess at that time, maybe still today, those magazines would come to these little small theaters and and, rev- and do reviews right. of shows. And that's what we did. You know, we were, we were a 10 o'clock show in Los Angeles every Friday and Saturday night. And we did very well. We got great reviews, especially... When I turned 19, the show kept getting better and better. When we got, when I was 19, we moved to a bigger theater and it was a more expensive, elaborate show. And we got reviews like, I mean, there was one review, I'll never forget, by, by a woman by the name of Polly Warfield. She wrote for Dramalog and Dramalog was the big drama publication in Los Angeles at the time. It had all the auditions and all the theaters and all the reviews and blah, blah, blah. And so Polly Warfield was in charge. She was the senior editor. And I don't know why she got our assignment, but she showed up at our theater. It was not a night where there was tons of people. She sat in the front row. She was like this older woman. Um, And a week later, a review comes out that my mother couldn't have written for me. I mean, it was astonishing. It was an astonishing review. And it highlighted me and my sketches and this and that and blah, blah, blah. What I did was I made Xerox copies of that review and I highlight my mag- my, my name and, and the sections about me. And I sent out 160 letters to 160 different 
literary agent. I had also written at that time a spec Wonder Years episode. So I was a junior in college. I was 19 and I'd written a spec Wonder Years episode and I wrote a letter um, and I got this idea from a book called Successful Sitcom Writing by Jurgen Wolf. It's just a very old book uh, that kind of instructed you how to get into the business. It must've been, I think the book was probably from the seventies, the early eighties, the seventies, I don't know what it was. It was very old. And I guess it wasn't that old at the time. It might've been 10 years at the time, but I, I sent out, it said, send out letters to agents, write a script, send out letters to agents and say what you've written, but don't send the material. Now, remember there wasn't email. There wasn't, right. everything had to be sent manually. So the idea that you'd send 160 scripts out to 160 agents, it would have cost a fortune, right? right? So what they said was at that time, write a letter, say, I'm this, 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 this. I have a script that is about this. And if you want to see what the ending is, send back the self-addressed stamped envelope that I'm including, and I'll send you the script. So I did that. But I, with that letter, I sent the review with the highlights. Right. A little accolade. A li exactly. So I'm not just this, this young writer at UC Irvine, theater major. I'm also this guy who does things. And I've gotten good reviews. So I sent out 160 letters. There's not 160 agencies in town anymore. But back, back then, there was 160 agencies from the very big ones, the ICMs and the CAAs and stuff, to these little tiny boutique agencies. Yeah. And over the course of a week, I got back, you know, 152 letters that said, thank you, but no, or no, we don't take submissions or no, no, no. But I got eight letters that said, send the script. I sent the script to eight people. And within a week after that, two of them wanted to sign me. Wow. So it was crazy. It was crazy. And that's what I meant by, I don't know if that could happen anymore. I think that, you know, th there's a lot that could be taken from that. And, and I would challenge you there because I went, like I was telling you, like I graduated with an accounting degree. I had no reason to be in the entertainment industry, right? right. It, my path was supposed to be CPA, right? And I was like, well, if I, as a Canadian, want to get to the U.S., I know that I need to prove myself over any other person that would have my credentials, basically nothing, right. to try and get an unpaid internship. Right. Right? Because that unpaid internship, then I can, you know, for 1500 U.S., that can get me a J-1 visa, it can get me in the door. And you have to, you know, you, you got to get your foot in the door to get ahead, right? 100%. And so what I ended up doing was... Um, I did a little, I did a semester abroad in England for a, for a hot second, got a little bit of international experience, you know, cause Canada is not international enough. And so, right. <laughs> and so came back to Canada, had, and organized my own events, my own hip hop shows of a hundred people. And then I got press to come on out. Cause that's what my, my mentor told me, get press, because if you have press, then you have your name. When people Google you, that your name will come up for something. Right. It's currency. And that's what I did. And I did the same thing that you just that you're describing right now. It, granted, it was emails and job applications on Monster and Indeed and, you know, Hollywood uh, Entertainment Jobs dot com or whatever these these companies were. And I applied to, I don't know, pro probably more than 160. Right. Because it's easier to just click the button and just copy paste your resume. Yeah. Uh, it was something like, I don't know, maybe five, six hundred jobs that I applied to over the span of six months in New York and LA. And like you said, I got two companies to reach back out. 
both of which full-time unpaid internships, and one of them was Crush Music, and I ended up just moving, dropped everything and moved. So, you know, so talk to me about this agent. So what was this first agent like for you? Well, it was funny because her name was Candy Montero. It was the Montero Rose Agency. Um, and Candy... With a K or a C? With a C. And, Sandy, and Candy said to me, look, you're 19 years old. You're in college. You're not going to get a job in the entertainment industry as a writer right now. Right. But we love your work. We, you know, we, we see so much potential in you. We think you're terrific. Um, we would love to represent you now, obviously, but not, like I said, nothing's going to happen. So we'd like to represent you when you get out of college. Okay. You know, when you're, you're in your twenties and blah, blah, blah. You're a little more settled. So I said, fantastic. Great. I can do another year of college. I can wait. But months, just a couple months later, I, and she called me up and she goes, look, um, I just pitched you for this thing at Fox. Uh, I want you to meet this guy. And uh, I said, oh, okay, sure, great. I think at that time I turned 20. When, I'm, when they signed me, I was 19. That was November, I think. But I turned 20. And I said, great. And I came back to, I, I, you know, I left UC Irvine one morning and I drove up to Los Angeles. And I, it's actually a very funny story. I drove to LA to meet at Fox. It wasn't for a sitcom. I didn't know what it was for. I didn't know what it was. I, I, I was still so fucking naive. And, but I was meeting this guy by the name of Joe Devola. Now, I don't know if you ever heard the name Joe Devola, but in, in uh, Seinfeld, there was a character, Crazy Joe Devola. Yes, yes, I remember him. I met the, so this was the real Joe Devola. And Joe Devola was, was an executive, executive at Fox. And I am a perpetually early person. I know. You started texting me 20 minutes before we began. Exactly. I was like, what the hell's going on? I've been sitting at this mic just staring at an empty computer for an hour. So I came from Irvine. And I, again, I didn't know how long it was going to take me. It was, was going to take me like an hour. But I must have left two and a half, three hours early. And I got to Fox. They said, go to the Fox Executive Building. So I went to the Fox Executive Building, which was the big die, the building in Die Hard, this big building in, on Century Bowl. And I parked there and I sat in my car waiting to go to this meeting for an hour, hour and 10 minutes. Waiting and waiting and waiting. And there's no cell phones or anything back then. There's nothing. Right. You're just sitting waiting. Finally, I get out like 10 minutes before the meeting casually walk into the building. There was no security back then. It was like, I'm like living in the 1600s. I know there's no security. It's like walking into these big buildings. I walk into this building. I go up to the second floor because that's what it's supposed to be, the second floor. And elevated doors open and I walk out and there's miles of cubicles. And remember, this is my very first meeting ever, right. ever in the business. And there's miles of cubicles and silence. And I'm like, what is going, what is this? What? And I go, hello, hello. And this guy just peeks out from a cubicle. He's like, yeah. I'm like, gee, I'm looking for Joe Devola. He's like, Joe Devola? Yeah, he's the, uh, the, uh, the executive in the executive building. 
oh, no, this isn't the executive building. The executive building is next door on the lot. This is the whatever building. I'm like, no. And I run to my car and I go in there and now there's security. So now I'm waiting in line. There's a gate, you know, the whole thing. There's parking, running, 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 running. I'm so late now. I'm running, running, running. I get there. I sit down and the, I'm sweating and sweating. And the, uh, I'm, it's awful. It's a disaster. And back then I used to think like, you have to like, because you go to a meeting and you're a kid, you wear a tie. <laughs> I wore a tie. I was wearing like a, a sweater vest. I probably looked like the biggest freaking nerd in the world, but I was drenched, drenched. So the assistant says, uh, uh, Joe will see you now. So I walked into Joe's office. I'm like, I am so sorry. I'm late. He's like, what happened to you? I'm like, I just went to the wrong building and I'm running. He's like, you're covered in blood. And I had bitten my lip and I had bled all over my shirt and my <laughs> vest. And I had no idea. And I started just riffing on that and being this neurotic idiot that, you know, I am. And he was laughing so hard. It just... It was over. That's where I got my first job because I had bit my lip, was bleeding on myself. And instead of being like, oh, I'm sorry and scared, I just made a fucking 10 minute comedy routine about it. He picked me up like by the scruff of my neck, walked <laughs> me across the lot to like a trailer. And they were doing these two shows in this trailer. One was they were pilots. One was called Fox Across America which was kind of like David Letterman, but on the road. Okay. And then there was this show called Malibu Beach Party, which was like an MTV style show, uh, a dance show on the beach. Okay. So these were the two shows. And he's like, you're going to work for this guy and you're going to work for this guy. I was like working for both shows. And these guys were like, okay. And they're like, and they paid me, a, they paid me some money. They paid me $600 a week at wow. that time. And that was awesome. I mean, that's a lot of money. That's what is the 89, 90? It was 89. It yeah. was 89. And it was like more money than God. I remember saying to a friend of mine, calling my friend at Irvine going, if, if I earn this money for the rest of my life, I'm sad. I'm fine. I'm fine. $600 a week. No, you're not fine with $600 a week once you get the family and the whole thing. But at that, as a 20 year old kid, exactly it's more money than God. It's like crazy. More money than my first paid job in New York City in 2016. So. <laughs> and I've heard since, I mean, because it wasn't an internship. It was a paid writer position. Right. And I was a writer for these two shows. They were non-guild shows, but I was working as a writer for these two shows and developing content for these two shows. In fact, I ended up being on Malibu Beach Party as an actor, as like the guy in charge of the games. I was in charge. I mean, I was like in charge of the games on the beach. That was my character. And Alyssa Milano was on and people from MTV were on and big musical acts. And we filmed four episodes of that. That never went. And then we filmed this other thing, Fox Across America. That never went. But I had started, you know, I had started. And then they put me on a show called Comic Strip Live, which was at the Laugh Factory here in Los Angeles. And it was a live show every Friday night or Saturday night, one of those where they'd have comedians on stage and we would, uh, and I wrote the interstitial material for the host of that show. And, uh, and that's it. That was, that was the beginning. You wrote the material for the host of that show. Did it, so would the host of that show then have like a teleprompter to like read off of? Yeah. Yeah. I did have a teleprompter. Yeah. Cause I always wonder how the hosts remember everything. That's how. 
Yeah. They have teleprompters. Even like American Idol? Oh, yeah. no, not American Idol. They don't have any teleprompters. <laughs> they would never, not on American Idol, but other shows. Thanks for tuning in to part one. Stay tuned for part two. Remember, new episodes release every Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific. See you there.